Loch Ness, one of the most haunting and mysterious regions in the highlands of Scotland. Every year, around a million people are drawn to the loch to experience its unique atmosphere, to gaze upon its somber and majestic scenery, and perhaps catch a glimpse of the creature that dwells in its depths. But few of them know that on the southern shores of the loch, there lies a house that has witnessed events that are even more strange and even more bizarre. A house in which the notorious Alastair Crowley invoked demonic forces over a century ago. A house in which those forces still remain to this very day. Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. The Scottish Highlands, one of the most romanticized and famed regions in the British Isles, and indeed the world. Countless battles have been fought in the region over the ages, and the region has seen its share of history's most famous names. Robert the Bruce, William Wallace and Rob Roy, Mary Queen of Scots, Robert Burns, Bonnie Prince Charlie, and many, many more have plied the land of the Scots over the centuries. But of all these famed people, none of them have had the enduring legacy of a certain highland lake, Loch Ness to be exact. So you're probably saying, ah, JT, it's time to talk about Nessie, as you rub your hands together with glee. But no, we're not here to visit the world-famous cryptid just yet. On tonight's episode, you won't get wet, so you can trade your gumboots and oars for a glass of single malt, and a nice relaxing chair or couch. But don't think it won't be exciting. Oh no, I wouldn't be a very good host if we didn't have some excitement, now would I? The beast incarnate, and self-proclaimed wickedest man in the world, a world-famous musician, and well-known student of the occult, mysterious suicides and fires, and the twelve kings and dukes of hell. Yes, tonight you are going to hear the fascinating tale of probably the most notable, or notorious, building along the shores of the loch. It lies half-hidden behind the trees, approximately midway between Foyers and Infergaig. This is the infamous Beleskin House. Well, good morning, everyone. Good evening. Good afternoon, wherever you are in the world where you're hearing my voice. And I just want to say it's good to be back. It's been a challenging few weeks. Had a few issues here with the winter weather with high winds and uh, heavy rains. Thankfully, we haven't had the flooding that they've had down south, but it's caused us issues with internet and power. Uh, as we all know, power lines don't like high winds, so we've we've had our issues here at Tower Studios. And it's also been very cold. Um, I mean, it is winter, obviously, but it has it was cold later in winter than normal. And in fact, I thought, well, maybe we escaped this year, but oh no, oh no, we haven't. It's been plenty chilly, so... Um, Unfortunately, it's not been the most conducive weather to be out here in the studio. For those of you that don't know, for its foreboding name, Tower Studios is recorded from a garage. So, yeah, there's no insulation and it's got concrete floors, so it's plenty cold. So aside from that, I just wanted to say thank you, everyone, for your patience. And I really think you're going to enjoy this episode. I put a lot of work into it. It's taken a lot of time. I probably had to look at about 50 different websites to cobble this together, 
but I think it's well worth it, and I think it's an excellent episode. So, yeah, I mean, you'll really want to sit back and relax and enjoy it. But this wouldn't be the Paranormal Sun without all the other parts of the program, one of them being the news of the dam, so we'll get into that in just, just a bit. One of the things that I wanted to do is give a few shout-outs. I haven't given any for a while. So, besides you, the listeners, which I always appreciate you taking the time to listen, uh, I wanted to give a couple of very special shout-outs. One to our chapter president in Pennsylvania, Nate Odd. Happy birthday, Nate. It looks like you had a great one, and I'm glad that you got to enjoy yourself. And to Dave, our chapter president in Missouri. Dave, happy birthday. Uh, I, I will admit, Dave, I was pretty depressed today. Uh, we've had a very rare occurrence of having three Cardinal games in a row on here. For those of you that don't know, uh, JT is a big St. Louis Cardinal fan. Um, yeah, when I was in high school, I used to get made fun of a lot. Uh, the guys who know know me that went to school with me, they'll know because I used to wear a Cardinal shirt all the time. And back then, the Cardinals were pretty woeful. Well, uh, they haven't had the best season, but the last three days in a row, the games have been on here, and that's a pretty rare occurrence. I can't ever remember outside of the playoffs them ever having the Cardinals on three days in a row. We kind of get mixed baseball specifically from ESPN. So it's been great. But uh, today I saw the third game in a row, and I'd already recorded yesterday. So I recorded today's and I watched yesterday's. And, oh, man, I'll tell you what. Uh, yeah, it was one of those where when I finished up, um, yeah, I didn't know if I needed a drink or a psychiatrist or what. So they were leading 6-1 to one in the ninth inning against the Cubs, no less, our rivals, our bitter rivals. The first out, quote-unquote, out of the inning was a wild pitch strikeout. So runner trots down to first. Next play is that the ball gets hit to the shortstop who throws it over the first baseman's head. So now we got two on. Then they walk the bases loaded. Uh, long story short, our closer who has set the record for starting his career for most uh, saves to start a career without blowing a save comes in. When the game is 6-2, to two, I believe, and proceeds to blow the game. And uh, we lose 7-6. to six. And, of course, to add insult to injury, in the bottom half of the ninth, they go 1-2-3. They go really quiet-like. So I'll tell you what, that was pretty depressing. I actually had to go and lay down and have a nap after the game. So sorry to get too far aside, folks. But, yeah, that was a pretty rough one. And, uh, Dave, yeah, we've had our talks about the cards this year. It's been a pretty rough season, man. It's been pretty up and down. We just got back to 500, and then they laid an egg like that today. It was unbelievable. So hopefully today's game that I recorded that I'll watch later on, hopefully that's a little bit better. We'll see. So aside from that, I do have a sad bit of news, my friends. So you all know that Dave is on a podcast called The Old 77 along with Scott. And Scott, Matt, and Dave have been super supportive of The Paranormal Sun. And Scott and I go back a long way. We've known each other for, oh, oh be about 30 years now. Um, yeah, just thinking, yeah, be about 30 years since I've known Scott. Well, unfortunately, Scott's mother's passed away. So, Scott, um, this is never easy when we lose loved ones. And hang in there, man. If there's anything I can do to help you out, um, you know I'm here, even if it's just someone to talk to. I, uh, I I definitely feel for you, Scotty. Um, my mom's been gone now for five years, and yeah, it's uh, 
some days it feels like it's been ages ago and other days it just feels very fresh. So, uh, yeah, we, we oftentimes when our parents pass away, we know they're not suffering and everything else. Oftentimes they've been ill, but, um, yeah, it's never easy, no matter what anyone says. So Scott, my condolences to you and the family and hang in there, buddy. If there's anything I can do, you know where to find me. There is one other thing I wanted to say, folks. I've been very amiss at not doing more of this on social media, social media in general, um, with the internet being down here and power issues. I couldn't really get on social media, but even before that, I'd kind of let it drop a bit because, to be honest, this podcast has been a full-time gig. I mean, it's like more than 40 hours a week between research, recording, trying to manage the social media. So I had kind of let the social media dip a bit anyway. But I had an appearance about a month or six weeks ago on another program. Now that program is called Cafecito Time with Christina. And Christina, I do apologize for not doing more to promote that episode. But as I say, my hands have been a bit tied with... uh, with the issues with the power and the internet, and then trying to get back into the studio and go hell-bent to try and get this episode out for you. But anyway, folks, I will have a link in the show notes, so you can go over there and check out that episode. It's a pretty short episode from memory. I think it was about half hour, 45 minutes, so it's not the typical three-hour marathons that you've become used to here on the Paranormal Sun. So go over there and check that out, folks, if you are interested. Now, aside from that, just before I get into the news of the damned, a couple other things. First and foremost, for those of you who may be listening for the first time, if you're wondering where to go and find out more about the Paranormal Sun, the best way is just to go to the Instagram page, which is the underscore paranormal underscore sun. And there's a link in my profile there, which has basically got the links of everywhere you could want. You can also find that same link in the show notes of this episode and the other episodes. I've tried to go back and retrospectively add it into every episode, so you'll see it at the very top of the show notes. You can just click on that link. Another way is, of course, you can go to www.theparanormalsun.com, and there you'll find merchandise. You can support the program, on and on and on. One of the things I've still got on my to-do list, and I will get there, folks, but it has not been top of the pops. It's not been my major concern is getting the Patreon page into a state so that if you do join, you're actually getting something worthwhile. Right now, to be honest, uh, I don't have any current Patreon supporters. That's why I haven't felt as much pressure to try and get that up and running. But I will, and I'll make sure to announce it here on the program when I do. Now, I've got a couple of notes about tonight's episode. First and foremost... There's a massive synchronicity involved in this episode. Now, I can't tell you about it just yet. And I know I do this to you a lot, folks, but it won't be too long and I will be able to reveal it. And I'll reveal it in a few weeks. I'll let you know and I'll refer back to this episode. But it was another one of those just insanely stunning um, synchronicities in the year of 2021 for JT. The other things I wanted to say about this episode is, look, I'm a lifelong fan of Led Zeppelin. 
So don't be upset about some of the things that are said about Led Zeppelin in this episode. This is pure conjecture. I mean, it's things that have been said by people in and around the band. So it's not like I have some mystic oracle. It's not like I went and interviewed Jimmy Page himself. Uh, I don't think he'd really have a lot of time for someone like me. The man's a multimillionaire. He's got lots of stuff to do. But anyway, don't get too upset because I'll tell you what, I know some people get really upset, really offended. And the other thing is, folks, if you've got kids or anyone who's a bit squeamish, this episode is pretty dark. It's one of the darker ones I've done. It's not any swearing in it, but there are some pretty, yeah, there's some pretty dark stuff in this. So just take caution, as the old saying goes. If it's something that makes you squeamish hearing about things like this, be very careful going into this. And uh, the other thing is, as I say, we're talking about Aleister Crowley, who is the self-styled wickedest man in the world, the Beast Incarnate. So again, some people don't really like talking about that kind of stuff. So a buyer beware, as the saying goes. Once we get through the news of the damned, we're getting straight into that stuff, okay? So black magic, ritual magic, esotericism, if any of that bothers you, my friends, this might not be the episode for you, just a heads up, all right? So with that being said, we're now going to move on to the news of the damned. Now, for those of you who are new to the show, the News of the Damned is an homage to a gentleman named Charles Ford. Now, here's a little interesting side note to for you. Now, I may have already known it before I heard it this week, but when I heard it, I went, oh, I don't remember hearing that in this story. So I'm pretty old school, right? Uh, I, I do like some newer things, of course. I try and keep an open mind. But I like to listen to a lot of things. If there's something I enjoy, I'll listen to it over and over and over again, be it music be it audiobooks, etc., be it certain authors. And one of those authors is H.P. Lovecraft. Well, H.P. Lovecraft did a, I'd call it a short story, kind of novella-type thing called The Dark Brotherhood. Now, in The Dark Brotherhood, my friends, they talk about Charles Ford. And I'll be damned, um, I don't ever remember that connection. But they talk about Charles Ford and his theory that we are basically some other species or some spacefaring species animals. We are basically cattle and chattel for people off-world. So yeah, interesting. Interesting little tie-in, to tell you the truth. Um, When I heard it, I went, because it's not the major focus of the story, but they talk about it for about two or three minutes, and I was just thinking, yeah, that is interesting. So yeah, anyway, Charles Fort was a gentleman from the early 1900s who was interested in all the things we carry and cover here on the Paranormal Sun. Unexplained, mysterious, strange lights in the sky, sea serpents, ghost ships, disappearing people, you name it. And Charles Fort was one of the first people who started recording these things that he found in periodicals, magazines, and newspapers of the day. And he gathered notes, and then he released four or five books about it and put it out there for people like you and I who enjoy these things to go through and read about and learn about some of this stuff. Well, Charles Fort referred to anything that was excluded by science, any information that was ignored or excluded by science as damned data. Therefore, this segment of the episode is always called The News of the Damned as an homage to Charles Fort. 
Right, so here we are, my friends. The very first article of the News of the Damned tonight has got to do with Loch Ness. So this is from Coast to Coast AM, and this one is titled, Full-Time Nessie Hunter Celebrates 30 Years Searching for Famed Monster. And this one is from just a few days ago, from July the 20th. And it says, A British man who left his life behind to search for the Loch Ness Monster on a full-time basis celebrated a staggering 30 years on the proverbial job this past weekend. According to a local media report, Steve Feltham became fascinated with the legendary cryptid when he was a child, and his obsession with the tale of the mysterious beast, said to lurk in Loch Ness, only grew as he got older. Eventually, he came to a crossroads at the age of 28 and wondered, what do I want to do with my life? Faced with the choice of settling down and starting a family, or embarking on a life of adventure, Feltham found the answer to be fairly obvious in his mind, musing that, for me, it was always about the Loch Ness Monster. As such, in July of 1991, he quit his job, broke up with his girlfriend, and sold his house in Dorset, England, to move to Loch Ness and dedicate his life to searching for the legendary monster. In the ensuing years, Feltham has become somewhat famous for his dogged pursuit of the cryptid, garnering a considerable amount of coverage from various media outlets, intrigued by his seemingly endless search, and being recognized by Guinness for the longest continuous vigil hunting for the Loch Ness Monster. While the attention and accolades may sound glamorous, Feltham actually leads a rather Spartan lifestyle, living out of a van that has been converted into a home, and making money by selling handcrafted souvenirs, depicting a dinosaur-like monster synonymous with the site. Despite what one imagines is a difficult existence, Feltham has no regrets about his three decades long, spent at Loch Ness looking for the monster. I am a free man doing exactly the thing I love doing, he mused. If you don't follow your dreams, the only person who loses is you. And to his credit, he still believes that he just might spot Nessie so long as he keeps looking. The odds are stacked against one man sat on a beach with a pair of binoculars, Feltham conceded, but I don't mind the extreme odds against me. I still love the possibility that it's just going to suddenly happen. Considering the sheer amount of time and effort he has put into looking for the creature, one can't help but hope that he will finally have that moment someday, since it will be well-deserved. Yeah, I fully agree with that, folks. And I admire his perseverance and dedication to covering Nessie. And boy, 30 years ago, folks, I can tell you this much. Um, everyone's different. I'm definitely not the person to work at one one job for 30 years. I get that it's not a job, it's more of his passion, but uh, yeah, man, um, good on him, because a lot of people uh, give up after a few years of doing things like that, so um, yeah, I do hope he gets to see Nessie as well someday soon. Now, the next one is a bit interesting, and it will ring a bell to a lot of you, and this is from CNN, and this is titled, Havana Syndrome Reported Among U.S. Diplomats in Vienna. So I'm sure they're going to cover it over here in the article what the Havana Syndrome is, but I know a few of you have mentioned it before, like Jeff from Badgerland Legends has mentioned it to me, Jeff in Wisconsin. So uh, yeah, it's an interesting uh, thing that's been going on. And it says here, Austrian authority, oh sorry, I should read the byline. I I've become used to coast to coast where I don't have to worry about saying who's written it. So this is by Denise Ruby and Jennifer Hansler from CNN. And it says, Austrian authorities said they are investigating reports that U.S. diplomats in Vienna 
have experienced syndromes of a mysterious illness known as the Havana Syndrome. We take those reports very seriously and, according to our role as the host state, are working with U.S. authorities on a joint solution. The Federal Minister of European and International Affairs said Sunday, The security of diplomats dispatched to Austria and their families is of utmost priority for us, the ministry added. A U.S. State Department spokesman said Saturday, In coordination with our partners across the U.S. government, we are vigorously investigating reports of possible unexplained health incidents among the U.S. Embassy, Vienna Community, or wherever they are reported. Victims of Havana Syndrome have reported a varying set of symptoms and physical sensations, including sudden vertigo, nausea, headaches, and head pressure, sometimes accompanied by a piercing directional noise. Some reported being able to step in and step out of those sensations by physically moving their bodies elsewhere. Some have been diagnosed with traumatic brain injuries and continue to suffer from debilitating headaches and other health issues years later. And I can tell you folks, that's no joke because I've suffered from migraines my whole life. And when you get laid low with that, it's really difficult to do anything. Since the incidents began in late 2016 in Cuba, U.S. federal investigators have struggled to determine what or who is causing the mysterious symptoms. There have been cases reported in Russia, China, and elsewhere around the globe. And a Senate committee said in April the number of suspected cases appeared to be on the rise. In April, CNN reported on two separate incidents that occurred near the White House last year affecting National Security Council staffers. In May, two defense officials said the Pentagon was drafting a memo to the entire U.S. military and civilian workforce asking personnel to report any so-called anomalous health symptoms that might indicate that they have been victims of Havana Syndrome, which has struck diplomats, spies, and military personnel around the world in recent years. No final decision has been made on whether to issue the memo, but the fact that it's being considered underscores the growing concern at the Pentagon's senior levels that they need to gather more information on the illness. So yeah, folks, that's an interesting one, and that kind of stuff that happens in those spy games, so to speak. I'll tell you what, we find out uh, there's some stuff I've seen before. I saw a program a few years ago about uh, kind of stuff that went on in the Cold War, some of the things they had, and man, that stuff was years and years ahead of its time. I mean, you know, some really small cameras, some small uh, weapons, things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, like I've said many times, I feel that what we know about, the technology that's behind closed doors is 20, 30, 40, 50 years ahead of what we are aware of in the white world, so to speak, the stuff that's being created in the black world. So I would not be surprised if somebody has got a handheld device that can do something like that. It's interesting. And um, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a negative thing, but uh, it just goes to show what happens in those worlds of the espionage and cloak and dagger. Okay, so folks, the next one here is from Vice. And this was an interesting little story. So this one is says, less than 7% of the human genome is actually uniquely human. Study finds... A large chunk of the human genome, 93%, is shared with Neanderthals and other archaic species, with only a sliver of it that makes us unique, scientists report. 
And this is from Red Hameli de Leon. And as I said, it's from uh, Vice, and it just came out yesterday. It's common knowledge that humans share a portion of our genome with Neanderthals, but a new study reports just how much of the human genome is unique to our species and was not inherited from our archaic ancestors, and it's surprisingly little. Researchers have found that only 1.5 to 7% of the modern human genome is uniquely human. Man, imagine that if we're 98.5% um, not uniquely human, modern human. This surprisingly small amount accounts for our neural development and function, which happened in multiple bursts of adaptive changes over the past 600,000 years, according to their findings. The study, which was published in Science Advances on Friday, used an algorithm to build what are known as ancestral recombination graphs of the human, Neanderthal, and Denisovian genomes that allowed them to pinpoint regions of DNA that are unique to modern humans. The research used genomes from 279 humans, two Neanderthal genomes, and one Denisovian genome. Looking closer at regions of the DNA that were human-specific, the researchers report that groups of alleles were found to be heavily enriched for genes reporting to cell adhesion, neuron growth, and synapse assembly. A number of mutations involved in neural cell migration and the clearing of toxic substances from the brain were also found. However, they note that the test did not suggest functional consequences for identified mutations. Any given mutation could be inconsequential or alter the regulation or one or more genes. Lead author Nathan K. Schaefer, a postdoctoral biomolecular engineer, student at the University of California in Santa Cruz, told Motherboard in an email, trying human-specific mutations is, sorry, tying human-specific mutations in those regions to functional changes is an exciting next step that will require experiments. The study doesn't say much about what characteristics the genome that is shared with, Ar with archaic hominin, but Schaefer says this can be difficult to pinpoint. Instead, he ref referenced other studies that highlighted alleles of genes involved in the immune system that were favored by natural selection in cases of adaptive introgression or interbreeding in humans who inherited DNA from archaic hominins. Though less than 7% seems like a very small amount of uniquely human DNA, that approximate percentage of human genome could determine more about the human species than we may realize. Biological features specific to modern humans, sorry folks, I'm flubbing a bit, are under the control of relatively small number of genetic changes that can be investigated in follow-up studies. It also means that some groups of archaic hominins, such as Neanderthals, were probably not as different from ourselves as we once believed, Schaefer said. So yeah, that goes back to the old theory, things that questions people have had. Uh, you know, did Neanderthal breed with modern humans at one time in the past with our ancestors? And also... Is it possible? Would it be possible for them to? Now, one of the other things is, of course, that human DNA and chimpanzee DNA, from memory, are about that similar. They're about 91, 93%, something like that. It's not a big difference between chimpanzee DNA and human DNA, so it is interesting. And again, as we go on and time goes on, folks, we find out more and more about our past, 
and it just goes to show how little we actually knew about what was going on on this planet for the last, uh, well, whatever it is, four or four and a half billion years. Okay, folks, the next one is something that is a bit, um, yeah, I've always been a bit concerned about. And I do get that there are uses that science can find in things like this. But I just think of all of the movies, all of the stories that have been written over the years about something like this. And it's not something I like reading. So this one is from Gizmodo.com. And it says, 15,000-year-old viruses were pulled from a Tibetan glacier. Two ice core samples drilled from the Tibetan plateau yielded over 30 different viruses from the last ice age. A team of microbiologists studying glacier ice in Tibet found 33 different viruses dated back to the Pleistocene in the core samples they pulled up. They suspect that the viral communities may have been active on glacier surfaces before being frozen and that some may be active even within the ice cores. The viruses found in the ice cap, called Guliaia, are thought to have infected the microbes that inhabited the same ice. The team is not sure when those infections occurred, though whether the viruses were more active before the ice cap formed or only thrived once it did, their complete analysis of the virus's ecology was recently published in the journal Microbiome. Man, this sounds like something straight out of a creepy pasta story. Based on the genetics of the various viruses, the team was able to attribute different bacterial hosts to some of them. The team notes that climate change means those pathogens are melting out of their stasis in the glaciers, which could be a problem in multiple ways. Such melting will not only lead to the loss of those ancient archived microbes and viruses, but also release them to environments in the future, according to the new paper. The team's cores were wrapped in plastic and put into cardboard sheaths encased in aluminum or aluminium. They were then shipped out of the ice cap in freezers on a truck, then a plane, then another plane, and then on a truck again, and are now stored at the Bird Polar and Climate Research Center at the Ohio State University at a cool minus 30 degrees Celsius. That's minus 22 Fahrenheit. Those cores and the viruses inside them are likely of no threat to us. Yeah, heard that before. The way we work with these cores, the viruses are immediately killed by the chemistry of nucleic acid extraction, so the viruses are not active, said co-author Matthew Sullivan, a microbiologist at Ohio State and director of the university's Center of Microbiome Science, in an email. Of the 33 viruses identified in the ice, 28 were novel, meaning they had not previously been documented by science. The frozen viruses came from families that typically infect bacteria. The team identified the viral elements after decontaminating the ice in a multi-step process. After scraping off the ice core surface in a lab environment with sterilized saw, they washed the cores in ethanol and water and bathed them in ultraviolet light. Then the core samples were filtered, concentrated, and sampled for genetic material. Detected genetic material was then compared to virus genes set in a widely used database. About half of the viruses had genetic sim signatures that indicated they were built for ice ages. These are viruses that would have thrived in extreme environments, Sullivan said in a press release. These viruses have signatures of genes that help them infect cells in cold environments. Just surreal genetic signatures for how a virus is able to survive in extreme conditions. These glaciers were formed gradually and along with dust and gases. Many other viruses were also deposited in that ice, 
said Ji Ping Zhong, lead author of the study and a researcher at the Ohio State University Bird Polar and Climate Research Center. In the same press release, the glaciers in western China are not well studied, and our goal is to use this information to reflect past environments, and viruses are a part of those environments. On the one hand, there's a non-zero chance that melting glacier ice will release active viruses not seen since the Pleistocene into the world. On the other hand, as reported by Vice, frozen biomasses are often in such small quantities that the outside world it's the outside world that presents a threat to them, not the other way around. Based on the amount of genetic evidence the team found in the course, the researchers suggest that the resident viruses could still be active in the glacier. It's also possible that so much viral material ending up on the ice that enough was available for extraction and sequencing thousands of years later. Uh, yeah, um, I get what they're saying. Don't get me wrong, but, um, yeah, I'd still rather not have it near me. How's that? <laughs> All right, folks, so I'm going to leave you with an interesting little one here, and this is from Mysterious Universe. And this is titled, The Bizarre Case of the Teleporting Pansini Brothers. Uh, this is from Brent Swanser on July the 15th. In 1901, a humble mason and architect by the name of Signor Mauro Pansini moved to the small town of Ruvo di Puglia in the Bari countryside of Italy with his family. It was an idyllic, charming little town surrounded by a mosaic of olive groves and vineyards, a great place to live a quiet life of solitude and raise their two young sons, Alfredo and Paolo. At the time, it must have seemed like a dream come true to live there in their modest home near the Palazzo Municipale. The family moved in and began restoration work on the quaint old house, but within days of moving in, their dream house would turn into a bit of a nightmare, and it would all spiral into an account of poltergeist activity, strange happenings, and teleportation. It began with things seeming to be moved around and misplaced without anyone able to figure out how or why. Yeah, I swear that happens around here all the time. I swear that I left it in one place and it ends up in another place. But maybe that's just me getting old. This might have been chalked up to just forgetfulness, but then they started to witness objects and furniture move on their own. There's a tie-in in the main topic of tonight's show. In just a few minutes, uh, there's a teaser for you. And this would only increase in intensity as the days went on. Objects began launching from their resting places to fly across rooms and smash into walls. And there were often found broken household items that had been twisted and broken as if in a rage. On some occasions, even large heavy pieces of furniture were overturned or sent flying. And by all appearance, it appeared to seem as though they were being haunted by some particularly violent and destructive ghosts. Perhaps unwisely, the family decided to hold a seance in order to try and communicate with the spirits that were tormenting them. Yeah, I, I can see why people would say perhaps unwisely. And this seems to have only made things worse. Shortly after this seance, the paranormal activity became even more explosive and terrifying, to the point where Morrow now believed that they might not be ghosts after all, but rather demons. And another tie-in in tonight's episode later on. One day, things got even stranger still, when one of their sons, seven-year-old Alfredo, suddenly went into a deep trance and began to speak in languages he had no way of knowing, such as French, Latin, Greek, 
using what was described as a strange voice like an orator. He would snap out of it without remembering anything, and from there the trances would get steady, steadily get both more frequent and more bizarre. He would say in these trances that the scripts would bring them everything they needed. Sorry, the spirits, not scripts, would bring them everything they needed. And sure enough, food would appear on the table or in their pantry as if out of thin air. Now that's freaky, all right? Often right before their eyes. When asked why this was happening, Alfredo claimed that he had chased away the evil spirits in the house and that they were now replaced by good spirits. A report in the newspaper Giornale d'Italia would say of it, One evening, the little Alfredo Paoli, aged seven years, while the rest of the family were present, fell into a state of sleep and began to speak in a voice which was not his own, saying that he had been sent by God for the purpose of driving away the evil spirits, and it seemed for a while as if a better class of spirits had come, for now there were all kinds of sweets, candy and chocolate. Sorry, the page keeps bouncing around on me, folks. That's why I kind of stuttering. Brought to them by the invisibles. And one night, the little boy, while in a state of trance, described a battle taking place between the good and the bad ghosts. Next, the boy began to walk mechanically and answer questions concerning things which he could not know. They took the boy to church. There he became as insensible as a corpse, but woke up as the bishop called his name. He remained with the bishop for several days and then returned to his parents. The trances and strange phenomena would continue to surround Alfredo and no one could figure out what was going on. Alfredo's family was convinced that their son was being possessed, and so finally decided to have him sent to a seminary school in a church for his own safety, where he would spend the next three years. It is reported that during this time the phenomena and possessions completely stopped, with life gathering some semblance of normality once again. But as soon as Alfredo returned, the strange incidents started all over again, and as much and with as much intensity as ever. And not only that, Alfredo's younger brother, Paolo, would also start experiencing the mysterious trances as well. Then one day, the weirdest phenomenon of all would happen, when the mother was discussing what to do with the bishop as the boys remained in their room. But when they went to see them, they were gone. Okay, so the mother's talking to a bishop to talk about how they're going to sort this out. And the boys were in their bedroom. But when they went into the room, the boys were gone. Astonished as to how the boys could have gotten out without them noticing, they moments later got a call from another local who told them that the boys were wandering around several miles away. Thinking that they had disobeyed the order to stay in their room and had snuck out, their angry father locked them in their room. But once again they somehow got out, and this time had appeared at their uncle's house many miles away, seemingly instantaneously. On another occasion they disappeared into thin air right out of a moving carriage only to be found at their intended destination when the carriage arrived. These instances of what seemed to be teleportation continued, and a report in the Giornale d'Italia would explain of the phenomena. One day the lad Alfredo and his brother Paolo, aged eight years, were at Ruvo at 9 a.m., and at 9.30 a.m. they were found at the Capuchin Convent at Malfati, some 30 miles away. Another day the whole family were sitting at the breakfast table at 12.30 p.m., and as there was no wine, the little Paolo was sent for it. He did not return, and half an hour afterwards, Alfredo suddenly disappeared. And by 1 p.m., both boys were found in a fishing boat on the sea, not far from the port of Barolata. They began to cry, and the fisherman, being himself frightened almost out of his wits by their sudden appearance, took them ashore, 
where by good fortune they found a coachman who knew them and took them home, where after a rapid drive of half an hour they arrived at 3.30. In this way they were spirited away on another occasion to Biscaleni, Gio, Giovinazzi, Mariota, and Firlizzi, the distance of which places from Ruvo may be seen on the map and brought back to their parents in the ordinary way. So, in other words, they ended up a half an hour coach ride away. So even if the boy snuck out during that half an hour and they didn't see him, there's no way he could have got there that fast on foot. In every instance, the children were found in a state of profound hypnosis and could not re remember what had happened. These strange episodes of teleportation were investigated by a medical advisor to Popes Leo XIII and Pius X, named Joseph Laponi, who set up an experiment to test the claims. He purportedly locked the boys in their rooms in, in their room and sealed off all escape routes, including windows and other doors within the house. Yet even then the boys vanished and reappeared instantaneously several miles away, right under everyone's noses. Other scientists and doctors studied the boys as well, but no rational explanation could be found. Before long, the bizarre story was all over the news and was being talked about all over Italy, with speculation rampant as to what could be causing these strange powers. Everything from witches to the devil to portals or powers of the mind were thrown around. But according to a spirit supposedly speaking through Alfredo during one of the trances, it was the spirits dematerializing them in one place and rematerializing them in another, just as they had done with the food on the table. The explanation of most skeptics was that this was merely ambulatory autonomism, in which a person would basically go into a trance and feel compelled to walk around without realizing it. Again, how did they walk so far so fast? Very much like sleepwalking but awake. But others disagreed with this conclusion. One report in the Annals of Psychical Science would say of it, With regard to the mysterious disappearance of the two brothers Pacini, and their almost instantaneous appearance in another locality, the hypothesis most easily accepted by the Italian servants who have looked into the matter is that it is a case of ambulatory autonomism. It is known that subjects affected with this nervous disease feel an irresistible impulse to move about and then fall into the second state. When they return to their normal state, they have forgotten all about it. Dr. Petrus, writing in the Secolo of Milan, does not exclude the hypothesis that the two boys, in a state of muscular hyperesthesia, might tra traverse, walk, or even run distances of 30, 40, 50, even up to 90 kilometers without resting. Nevertheless, he asks how they could possibly run or walk 14 kilometers or 9 miles in half an hour. Exactly. Exactly. That's Usain Bolt's speed in half an hour. All right? Not going to... And, and again, folks, Usain Bolt runs 100, 200, 400 meters. He doesn't run uh, nine miles, okay? So keep that in mind. Besides, he adds, how is it that these two lads and their precipitative pergenegations have never attracted the attention of passers-by so no one's seen them walking around, when the main roads of those districts are always frequented by numerous carts and persons on foot? This explanation would also not explain any of the poltergeist activity that surrounded the whole thing. In the meantime, the Passini boys would pull off countless disappearing acts, always appearing miles away instantaneously, often out of locked rooms or even in full view of witnesses, inspiring awe, fascination, and even fear wherever they went. 
This would continue for years until the boys reached puberty. Ah, ding, 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 ding. Hold on, I'll cover that in a minute. After which, the episode stopped, and they seem to have lost their powers. The case has has gone on to be much discussed, but it is hard to tell how much of it actually happened and just what was going on here. What happened to this family, and what was the meaning of the haunting and possessions? Could those two boys really do what everyone said they could do, teleporting around in the blink of an eye? Is there some rational explanation for this, or is it all an example of powers that we may never understand? There is no real way to know, and the story of the Passini brothers remains one of the strangest tales of supposed human teleportation there is. Indeed, and I had not heard this tale. Now, why I said ding, ding, ding was, oftentimes, folks, um, in the past, when poltergeists are involved, and in this case, spirits, moving things around, poltergeists, damaging furniture, on and on and on, oftentimes in the past, the people who study it and the people who investigate it tend to believe that a prepubescent girl is often the cause of it and that once that woman hits puberty the poltergeist activity stops so it is interesting that little tie in there but that's a fascinating one there folks and uh yeah i had not heard of this one i've heard of other stories of human teleportation and, um, yeah, this one is interesting and to me all the more fascinating for the fact that it went on for several years. So, folks, I hope that you enjoyed the News of the Damned. As always, if you would like to send me an article to read on the News of the Damned, you can send it to theparanormalsun at gmail.com and I'll do my best to cover it over on the air. Now, my friends, sit back and relax. If you like to drink, pour yourself a scotch. Sit down, make sure that you've got on some bright lights. You'll know why soon. You might find some uh, some entities around you. Even at noon, you might need to use electric lights. And we're going to get into the fascinating tale and what ties Aleister Crowley, the Loch Ness Monster, Jimmy Page, and Led Zeppelin, and so many other things all together. One very fascinating home in the Scottish Highlands. This is the tale of the Boleskine House. The pentagram dedicated to Henry Foreman in the years of the primal course and the dawn of terrestrial birth man mastered the mammoth and horse and man was the lord of the earth. He made him in hollow skin from the heart of an holy tree. He compassed the earth therein and man was the lord of the sea. He controlled the vigorous steam he harnessed the lightning for hire. He drove the celestial team, and man was the lord of the fire. Deep mouthed from their thrones, deep seated, the choirs of the eons declare the last of the demons defeated. For man is the lord of the air. Arise, O man, in thy strength. The kingdom is thine to inherit, till the high gods witness at length that man is the lord of his. As the setting sun slips behind the hills of Loch Ness, lights from Crofts in the village of Foyers are a warming sight, but there's one house locals shun during the dark hours, and few will pass on foot. It's the manor of Boleskine, the former home of Satanist Aleister Crowley, a house said to be full of spirits that's been a center of the occult and black magic. Few know the secrets of the house of evil and what Crowley did there, 
Shadow figures allegedly roamed around the entrance hall, with lights having to be used even on the brightest of days. According to legend, Boleskine House is built atop the ruins of a 10th century church that burnt to the ground during a service, killing all of the congregants inside. The house looks over Boleskine Cemetery at the foot of the hill, which has long been the site of misdeeds and occult happenings. The manor and the cemetery are allegedly inexplicably linked by a tunnel leading from the cellar to the graveyard, possibly as an escape route for the church, or an entry point into the house used by gentry who owned the house. Unexplained and unconfirmed stories of strange going-ons during Alistair Crowley's residence at Boleskin House are legend. There are tales of people dying or mysteriously disappearing, even of a butcher who chopped his own hand off after receiving a meat order from Crowley, which had been inadvertently scrawled on the back of a piece of paper containing one of his spells. But what are the facts surrounding the legendary property? What actually happened here, and what is simply good storytelling? Well, as always, it's not always easy to separate the two, but that is what we are going to try and accomplish tonight. The Boleskine Estate has a long and colorful history. It began as a church parish around the 13th century, when the Church of Rome began expanding into the Scottish Highlands. The land was governed by a succession of ministers well into the 20th century. The area has a history of strange happenings. The parish of Boleskine was formed in the 13th century. A kirk and graveyard were built in the parish around this time. A succession of ministers ran Boleskine Parish and would travel the area on horseback or on foot in all weather conditions. Minister Thomas Houston, who lived from 1648 to 1705, was said to have had the task of hastily laying animated corpses back in their graves after a devious local wizard had raised the dead in Boleskine Graveyard. It is possible before it transferred from the local parish to private ownership that Boleskine stood as a military installation or lookout point during the rebellion years and construction of General Wade's military road. There are many clues on it built in elevated position on the lock that indicate this. The first private owner of Boleskine House was Archibald Campbell Fraser of Lovett. From seven, he lived from 1736 to 1815. He oversaw its commission as a manor estate. Archibald was the second son of the better-known Simon Fraser, the 11th Lord Lovett, nicknamed the Fox, who was notoriously known to play both sides during the Jacobite uprisings in the 18th century, who was notoriously absent at the Battle of Culloden with his fellow Frasers, and who was later captured and beheaded for treason at the Tower of London. It is said that Simon's head can be heard rolling up and down the corridor of the house. Archibald C. Fraser served as British consul in Tripoli and Algiers, and would serve as MP for Inverness Shire in Parliament. Archibald commissioned Boleskine House in the 1760s as a hunting lodge, although it was not finished until 1809. Colonel Archibald Fraser apparently chose the site specifically to irritate Simon Fraser. The 11th Lord of Lovett, in, ret in retribution for his support of the Hanoverian side during the Jacobite Rising of 1745, as Lord Lovett's land surrounded the site of Boleskine. The original hunting lodge was expanded continuously by the Fraser family until around 1830. All the homes were situated on one floor, with four bedrooms, a kitchen, servant's attic bedroom above the kitchen, a lounge, a drawing room, and a library. Having outlived all of his sons, the house would later pass to his grandson, Archibald T.F. Fraser, and the estate remained in the ownership of the Fraser family until 1894. Now it's time for the B666. 
Alistair Crowley was born on the 12th of October, 1875, at 30 Clarendon Square, in Leamington Spa, Warwickshire, the elder child of Emily Bertha, Nee Bishop, and Edward Crowley. There is a claim that at birth Crowley was found to have four hairs directly over the center of his heart, curling from left to right in the exact form of a swastika, which is an ancient mystic symbol. It was his mother Emily who first called him the Beast, for even as a child she believed he was the devil incarnate. Crowley later called himself the Beast 666, the description given to the Antichrist in the Book of Revelations. Their son was spoiled by material comfort and a belief in his spiritual superiority. His mother called him the Great Beast, the unholy monster of the Apocalypse, and Therian 666. Crowley was his own publicity machine and relished in attention throughout his life. The wilder and viler the claims by the press, the better. At his father's death, the boy became truly hostile to Christianity, for he was then transferred to the care of his uncle, Tom Bond Bishop, who was publicly philanthropic but surreptitiously cruel. At the age of 20, Crowley went up to Trinity College, Cambridge, to study for the natural sciences Tripos, and in his leisure time, excelled at chess and mountaineering. In October of 1897, he had a fevered vision, and it convinced him that all human endeavors were ephemeral, with one exception, the magical tradition. He dedicated himself to esoteric studies and sought initiation by genuine magi. Poetry greatly attracted him, and it was probably Shelley's Alastor, or the Spirit of Solitude, that inspired Crowley to call himself Alistair, a deliberate repudiation of his given name. The spelling reflects a Gaelic form in keeping with the Celtic revival then popular. Crowley soon after came into his inheritance, which he spent extravagantly. Crowley met members of the London Temple of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, a quasi-secret society which had been founded in 1888 and claimed to transmit a species of ancient Kabbalism. In 1898, Crowley was initiated into the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn as Freder Perturabo. I will endure is what Perturabo means. Crowley's magical self, Perturabo, was a part of his concept of selfhood. These are his own words. As a member of the Second Order of the Golden Dawn, I wore a certain jeweled ornament of gold upon my heart. I arranged that when I had it on, I was to permit no thought, word, or action, save such as pertained directly to my magical aspirations. When I took it off, I was, on the contrary, to permit no such things. I was to be utterly uninitiated. It was like Jekyll and Hyde, but with the two personalities balanced and complete in themselves. The teachings of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn were based upon an imaginative reworking of Hermetic writings, further informed by 19th century scholarship in Egyptology and anthropology. The order was structured around the symbol of the Kabbalah and organized into temples that were run on strictly hierarchical lines. Authority was vested in leading individuals, and initiates were given a rigorous and systematic training in the rejected knowledge of Western esotericism. They studied the symbolism of astrology, alchemy, and Kabbalah, were instructed in geomantic and tarot divination, and learned the underpinnings of basic magical techniques. He soon impressed Samuel Little Mathers, one of the order's founders, which disappointed another young initiate, William Butler Yeats, who judged Crowley to be completely insane. Mathers had revived obscure techniques for evoking one's guardian angel, Despite quickly rising through the ranks of the Golden Dawn, he clashed with other members, who included author of Dracula Bram Stoker, and as I've mentioned, 
W.B. Yeats. Crowley contended that the latter's anima animosity was down to jealousy of his ability as a poet. Many of the more staid members believed that a magician should abstain from sex, drink, and drugs to keep his mind clear. A keen advocate of all three, it was all too lightweight for the Beast 666, who was soon accused of black magic, while accusing Yates of using black magic against him in return. Crowley decided to outdo them all and set about his first attempt to invoke his holy guardian angel. Buying Boleskine House on the shores of Loch Ness, he commenced performing the Abramelon, a six-month black magic ritual that nobody had dared undertake in centuries. While the aim of the ritual is to invoke the magician's holy guardian angel, to do so he must also evoke the twelve kings and dukes of hell, including Lucifer, Satan, Leviathan, and Belial, and bind them, thereby gaining command of them in his own mental universe. The ceremony has an introduction which states that no one should try to perform it. If this all sounds fantastical, remember, remember that many religious sects, including Islam and Judaism, claim that King Solomon himself built his famed temple through a signet ring of power called the Seal of Solomon. It was often depicted in either a pentagram or hexagram shape. This ring variously gave Solomon the power to command demons, the jinn or genies, and spirits, or to speak with animals. Using this ring, Solomon began to bring demons under his control, beginning with Ornias, the demon who had been tormenting the son of Solomon's master workman. By questioning the demons whom he summoned, Solomon was able to learn their names, how they persecuted human beings, and how they could be countered. Additionally, the king was able to make these demons work for him. Solomon commanded the demon Asmodeus to help with the construction of the temple. Once the construction of the temple was finished, Solomon had the demons imprisoned in bottles. These bottles were said to have been buried under the monument that the demons helped build. In one story, the demons were released when Nebuchadnezzar captured Jerusalem. When the temple was destroyed, the Babylonians found the bottles buried by Solomon. Thinking that they contained gold, the soldiers opened the bottles, thus releasing the demons back into the world. So now, aged just 25 and 1899, the British poet, mountaineer, and esotericist Alistair Crowley purchased Bleskin for £2,000, twice its market value of the day, from Mary Rose Hill Burton. Crowley would place a great deal of importance on the house, as it held what he considered to be the perfect conditions for a spiritual retreat, offering the quiet seclusion amongst the bucolic landscape of Loch Ness. He developed a love of Scottish culture, describing himself as the Laird of Boleskine, and took to wearing traditional Highland dress, even during his visits to London. It was here that Crowley is known for conducting an extensive practice of the magic of the Abramelin. Some believe it was a black magic ceremony. Others claim it was an austere rite, which originated out of a mid-15th century manuscript of Jewish provenance and outlined a rigorous set of practices involving devotion and prayer as a method to speak directly with God. The ritual harkened back to the 1400s. It was translated by a Jewish scholar called Abraham the Jew from a North African manuscript. Abraham claimed he was wandering the Middle East looking for true magicians from whom to learn. He finally came across a wizened mage named Abramelin, who passed the rite on to him. It dealt with the summoning of a guardian angel and the summoning and binding of the four great dukes of hell, Lucifer, Satan, Leviathan, and Belial. Leviathan, it should be noted, is an ancient sea dragon written of in Hebrew texts. The serpent is likened with the more ancient Lotan 
in the legends of what is now Syria and the more ancient still Tiamat, the Babylonian dragon of chaos, and the even earlier Sumerian water dragon Kerr. Now think about it for, for a second, folks. Just take a step back and think about that. So Leviathan, sea dragon, Loch Ness monster, summoning. Interesting, right? The ritual demanded idiosyncratic architecture, and Crowley had previously tried to replicate this in his London flat. Although not having the desired effect, strange things did happen there. In the Great Beast's own words, During this time, magical phenomena were of constant occurrence. I had two temples in my flat, one white, the walls being lined with six huge mirrors, each six feet by eight, the other black, a, a mere cupboard in which stood an altar, supported by the figure of a negro standing on his hands. The presiding genius of the place was a human skeleton, which I fed from time to time with blood, small birds and the like. The idea was to give it life, but I never got further than causing the bones to become covered in a viscous slime. Exactly whose skeleton it was, and how Crowley came about it, is unclear, but it is featured in one of his most notorious and amusing spells. Althea Giles, a local artist and lover of one of Crowley's poet rivals, W.B. Yeats, was sent to visit Crowley. Yeats had her scratch his foe's hand with a brooch, and carry a drop of the beast's blood back to her spouse. Yates alleged using this as a spell component to invade Crowley's dreams, but more of the precious fluid was needed, and Giles was again sent back. This time, however, the beast was ready, and had already sprinkled Giles's apartment with a magic potion. Upon arriving at Crowley's flat, she became overcome with lust for the skeleton and made love to the blood and slime-infested cadaver. After this, she was promptly rejected by Yeats. I wonder why. Yet more happened at Crowley's flat, apparently on, a, on account of the occult decor. Again from Crowley. The demons connected with Abramelin do not wait to be evoked. They come unsought. One night, Jones and I were out to dinner. I noticed while leaving the White Temple that the latch of the Yale lock had, had not caught. Accordingly, I pulled the door to and tested it. As we went out, we noticed semi-solid shadows on the stairs. The whole atmosphere was vibrating with the forces we had been using. We were trying to condense them into sensible images. When we came back, nothing had been disturbed in the flat, but the temple door was wide open, the furniture disarranged, and some of the symbols flung about the room. We restored order and then observed that the semi-materialized beings were marching around the room in almost unending procession. More on that later. When I finally left the flat for Scotland, it was found that the mirrors to take out, except by way of the Black Temple. This had, of course, been completely dismantled before the workmen arrived, but the atmosphere remained, and two of them were put out of action for several hours. It was almost a weekly experience, by the way, to hear of the casual callers fainting or being seized with dizziness, cramps of ap apoplexy, on the staircase. It was a long time before those rooms were relet. People fled instinctively at the presence of something uncanny. Similarly, later on, when I gave up my rooms on Victoria Street, a pushing charlatan thought to better himself by taking them. With this object, he went to see them. A few seconds later, he was leaping headlong down the five flights of stairs, screaming in terror. He had sufficient genuine sensitiveness to feel the forces without possessing the knowledge, courage, and will required to turn them to account 
or even endure their impact. The Abramelin was a text central to Crowley's new religion, Thelma, which he believed would help him make contact with his holy guardian angel. He reportedly required a house in more or less secluded location with a door that opened to the north from where the oratory could be delivered. One of the th first things he did was to consecrate the southwest part of the house. That included the dining room. It became his temple, and to him it was the most important room. Crowley put a north-facing door in this room, which led out to a terrace of river sand. It's a flower bed today, and the spirits and demons Crowley was calling up had to enter from the north over river sand. To work the abramelin magic was no simple task. The rituals of preparation take six months, starting in Easter, and several hundred spirits, many extremely dangerous, have to be evoked to vitalize a talisman to be used as an instrument of power. As laid down, Crowley built the door and laid out the terrace of river sand, which ended with a lodge outside the door where the spirits congregated. This gave him some protection as the spirits, if thought too dangerous and uncontrollable, could be banished before entering the oratory or temple. Inside the temple room itself, Crowley built a wooden structure lined with the mirrors he brought from London. During Crowley's preparations, hosts of demons were attracted, some of which materialized. Throughout the district, great deals of damage were said to be done, and local people made detours of several miles through Stratheric to avoid the house. Despite these local difficulties, Crowley carried on. The house was considered perfect for the ceremony due to its relative seclusion, because as Crowley put it, one must have a house where proper precautions against disturbance can be taken. This being arranged, there is really nothing to do but aspire with increasing fervor and concentration for six months towards the obtaining of the knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel. The house also sported the necessary opening to the north, as I've said, where Crowley built that terrace and adorned it with fine river sand. Now I keep going over that, but there's a reason why. A place where, as proof of the ritual's progress, the footprints of spirits were to appear. So by putting down this fine river sand, he couldn't see the spirits, but he could see their footprints. Crowley considered this building to be the Thelmetic Kibla, a kind of esoteric mecca or focal point for mystical energy, making it a powerful center for performing intense magical rituals. When the preparations had been set, Crowley began the ritual, citing in his personal diary a promise not to offend God or work ill against his neighbors. From there, Crowley planned to banish the demons once they had been summoned to the terrace, where he could see their footprints in the river sand. His intention for the ceremony were simple, if misunderstood by many. Crowley intended to evoke what he called the Lords of Darkness in a painstaking six-month ritual that would compel them to serve the forces of, of good, a process hopefully culminating in contact by the higher self, or guardian angel of sorts, who would see Crowley through an enlightenment. As one can imagine, these so-called dark forces would not take kindly to being bound to the light and were expected to put up a fight. In his diary, Crowley described some of the odd effects the ritual was having on the property as it was performed. One day I came back from shooting rabbits on the hill and found a Catholic priest in my study. He had come to tell me that my lodgekeeper, a total abstainer, so that's someone who doesn't drink, for 20 years, had been raving drunk for three days and had tried to kill his wife and children. I got an old Cambridge acquaintance to take Rocher's place, 
but he too began to show symptoms of panic fear. Crowley's attempts to perform the full ritual at Beleskin failed. No one knows quite why, but the rite was never completed. The semi-formed shadows that he evoked in London seem to have been called again, however. John Simmons, his biographer, recounts that the house's lodge and terrace became populated with shadowy shapes. The place seemed to have a strange and violent effect on people. A workman employed to renovate the villa went berserk and attacked Crowley, who had to knock the man out and lock him in a coal shed. Another ominous happening was that a local butcher accidentally cut off his own hand while reading one of Crowley's notes. Despite these clear signs, Crowley continued to work on the ritual, going so far as to deny visits from friends for fear of their safety. Meanwhile, back in London, the members of the Golden Dawn had become increasingly unsatisfied with Mather's leadership and his growing friendship with Crowley. The adepts were tired of relying on Mathers to contact the secret chiefs, the ancient cosmic authorities who dictate the order of the universe. The members were anxious to contact these beings themselves, to form their own temples, and to rid themselves of Mathers' autocratic rule. Feeling the pressure building, Mathers sent for the assistance of Crowley, who had previously promised his financial and social resources should the need ever arise. Despite his better judgment, Crowley dropped the lengthy ritual and traveled to Paris in order to assist his friend and mentor. Interrupting his magical ceremony would later prove to be a grave mistake. Shortly after Crowley left for Paris, the locals began to murmur about the dark, black clouds hanging in the skies around Beleskin House, many residents going far out of their way to avoid traveling near the building. Upon his return to Beleskin, Crowley immediately felt the changes in his estate. Even his protege had fled the property while he was gone. He again went to his diary. Besides these comparatively explicable effects on human minds, there were numerous physical phenomena for which it is hard to account. While I was preparing the talismans, squares of vellum inscribed in India ink, a task which I understood, which I undertook in the sunniest room in the house, I had to use artificial light, even on the brightest days. It was a darkness which might almost be felt. The lodge and terrace, moreover, soon became peopled with shadowy shapes, sufficiently substantial as a rule to be almost opaque. I say shapes, and yet the truth is they were no shapes properly speaking. The phenomenon is hard to describe. It was as if faculty of vision suffered some interference, as if the objects of vision were not properly objects at all. It was as if they belonged in an order of matter that affected the sight without informing it. Sounds a lot what, like what people describe shadow beings as, doesn't it? Crowley spent little more time at the house, instead leaving shortly thereafter for New York, and then Egypt, where he would again attempt to contact his holy guardian angel, this time claiming success. The Beleskin house then changed hands many times. The various owners all reported strings of terrible luck. Of his experiments in the Highlands, Crowley, who styled himself Laird of Beleskin and Abertarf, wrote, The demons and evil forces had congregated round me so thickly that they were shutting off the light. It was a discomforting situation. There could be no more doubt of the efficiency of the operation. It is said the consequences of Crowley's time at Beleskin were long felt, with several personal tragedies associated with the house. Beleskin became so important to Crowley that he taught his followers to focus their spiritual intent in its direction. It was at Beleskin that Crowley worked on the Book of the Goetia, or Howling, which gives instructions on summoning spirits and demons. 
and it was thought to be so dangerous no one would publish it for many years. One employee of the estate attempted to kill his wife and children. It was claimed in Crowley's diary. His lodgekeeper, Hugh Gilly, suddenly lost his two children in sudden, unexplained circumstances. A housemaid is said to have gone mad, and again that local butcher cut his hand off while dealing with Crowley's order. Increasing financial problems forced Crowley to sell Bleskin by 1918. After the First World War, Hollywood actor George Raft was involved in a scandal selling shares for a pig farm that was supposedly built on the grounds of Bleskin, except for one thing. This farm never existed. After this, a newly married couple moved into the house. The wife was blind, and after a month, the man walked out, leaving the woman wandering around and unable to see. Boleskin was then registered into the ownership of Dorothy C. Priestley, Knee Brook, and plans were introduced in 1926 to make significant alterations and extensions to the house. However, these plans never came to fruition. Boleskine House passed through a series of owners after Priestley, being purchased by Foyer's Hotels, LTD, in 1944, then to David Shirley, Crichton Simpson, in 1946, who a year later sold the property to John Robert Rankin, Fullerton, of Noblethorpe, Barnsley, Yorkshire. In 1960, the new owners of the property, Major Edward Grant, killed himself with a shotgun in the bedroom that had been used by Crowley for many of his satanic rituals. Anna McLaren, his former housekeeper, describes the scene. He was had a, supposed to have a room of his own as you come in the front door and his own room and bathroom there. And I went to look and there he was in front of this big mirror and his head off. So I was so scared, I did run back to her bedroom, which was quite a distance, you know. And um, I said, the major... Sh- Shot himself, Mrs. Grant. When we came up and I went in the front door, there was this little bone at the front door and she, they had a little doggy. She gave it to him for his birthday. Pickywick was his name. And I says, where did you find that, Pickywick? Because they had a huge fridge. There was nothing in it. And I wondered. And I took the bone and just threw it. <laughs> My husband used to laugh afterwards at what I did. Anyway, the, the detectives, I told the detectives this. We knew it was a bone of his skull. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of Edward's skull. They found it, uh-huh. We put into the coffin with the rest. Boleskine House next came into the ownership of Mary Verrett Grant, otherwise known as Mary Lorraine, in 1960. It is alleged that, while on an art exhibition in Inverness, Mary Lorraine met Molly Lorraine, unrelated the latter who was fascinated by Boleskine's mysterious lore and wanted to buy the property. When she met Mary, who shared her surname, it was too strange to call it coincidence, and she convinced her husband, Dennis Henry Lorraine, to purchase the property in 1963. The Lorraines were looking for property in the Scottish Highlands with the intent to use the land as a pig-rearing operation. However, in reality, Lorraine, who was by now a career con man, was establishing a small pig-feeding farm at Boleskine as a ruse for the ongoing Cadco scandal further south in the Glen Rose. By the time the law had caught up to Lorraine, he had sold Boleskine House and fled to the United States. It was sold to Halbert Kerr, who ran Boleskine as a guest house from 1967 to 1971. 
This kind of strangeness went on for years, leading believers of the mystical and occult to believe that the house had become a sort of portal, the unfinished ceremony leaving an open gateway to worlds unknown, spreading the activity from beyond the confines of the house itself and into the surrounding area. It was around this time in 1933 that the Loch Ness Monster began to rear its long, reptilian head. Frederick William Holliday, one of the most well-publicized Loch Ness Monster investigators, having published two books dedicated to the search for the creature, made an assessment in the 1970s that the monster acted itself much like a supernatural creature, leading him to rethink his stance on its origin. Instead, Holliday postulated that the creature's apparent self-concealing phenomena was evidence that it could be possibly related to the aftermath of Crowley's preternatural stuff-up. Strangely enough, the first recorded appearance of the Loch Ness Monster coincides with the beginnings of the end of Crowley's legacy. More on this later on, folks. In 1934, Crowley was declared bankrupt after attempting to sue an artist who called him a black magician. Addressing the jury, the judge said that in all his years in law, he had never heard such dreadful, horrible, blasphemous, and abominable stuff as that which had been produced by the man, Crowley, who describes himself as the greatest living poet. In the decade that followed, Crowley became addicted to heroin and died of a respiratory infection at the age of 72. His nurse and another witness reported his last words to be, Sometimes I hate myself. The paranormal happenings in the house did not cease after Crowley's death. In fact, word of the Beleskin house's notoriety began to spread like wildfire. Enter Jimmy Page, Led Zeppelin guitarist, producer, and collector of Crowley memorabilia. Jimmy Page was the next owner of Beleskin House in 1971. Page sought to remodel the house with a Crowley-like theme. Despite this, Page spent little time at the house itself. He bought Beleskin House on the southern bank of Loch Ness, driven by his long interest in the work of Victorian occultist and magician of the black arts, Alistair Crowley, who, as we have covered, lived here in the early 1900s. Page may only have visited a handful of times, but the rock god is forever linked to what has been dubbed the most notorious home in the Highlands. Do What Thou Will is inscribed on Led Zeppelin's Led Zeppelin III vinyl. Page owned the house for over 22 years, but he spent only six weeks there in that time. Was he just busy living the rock and roll lifestyle, or was there something more ominous to it? Jimmy Page has his own dark connection to the occult, as you are about to hear. The Curse of Led Zeppelin People started to whisper about this in the late 70s. Nobody had any particular facts. But when Zeppelin drummer John Bonham died in September of 1980, things started to pick up. Led Zeppelin are a band riddled with the kind of rock and roll stories that would make Spinal Tap blush. In fact, in many ways, the band are usually the source of most rock and roll legends and tales. One story grabbed my attention, and it takes a darker turn as we revisit the time Jimmy Page was cursed by iconoclastic filmmaker Kenneth Anger. Most of the cursed talk is centered around the B-666 himself, Aleister Crowley. To say the word magician in the 21st century conjures up images of David Blaine or David Copperfield working illusions. In the late 1800s, however, there existed a different kind of magician. These guys were serious, unlocking dimensions, communication with extraterrestrial intelligences, communication with the dead, thought teleportation, spirit photography, spooky stuff, 
and grounded in science. The spiritualism movement was huge at the time, and though many charlatans inhabited the terrain, making the public think this was all some tomfoolery, others knew better. But you don't have to take my word for it. Just read up on the influence of Helena Blavatsky in the spiritual movement and theosophy. Much of this work was centered in England around the Golden Dawn Society, founded by Samuel Little McGregor Mathers in the late 1880s. Now, it was the secret society, as we've covered, based loosely on Freemasonry, and like the Masons, they had access to ancient secret Egyptian knowledge, supposedly. Their intent wasn't evil or underhanded. They were convinced that humans had unlimited potential and had vast untapped reservoirs waiting to be discovered. In short, they wanted mankind to rise up to a higher level of consciousness and awareness, not bad aspirations. They attracted high society intellectuals. William Butler Yeats, as I say, was an early member. But in fighting for control of the group and a new member, that being Aleister Crowley, caused rifts that tore the group apart. By the early 1900s, the group had splintered into several sects and Crowley was off on his own. The salacious aspects of Crowley are the easiest to locate in books and internet articles. Copious use of drugs, copious sex, lots and lots of sex, and sex while on drugs, lots and lots of drugs. You get the idea. His life is far too much to cover here, so we won't try. And yes, folks, one day I will do a Crowley episode. But suffice to say, Crowley continued on an esoteric magical path that continued to confound and mystify and push the boundaries of understanding of the unseen further than anyone in the last 200 years. He is indirectly responsible for Scientology, but was long dead when L. Ron Hubbard foisted that scam onto the public. He became known as the master magician of the early 20th century, part devil incarnate or part receptacle of interdimensional knowledge. You choose. It was easy to find both opinions. Enter Rock and Roll From Beatlesque good times to the psychedelic movement, it was only a scant three years. Fans and bands were looking for something further. LSD and a rainbow of other drugs gave the insight that there were actually was something further out there. Bands started to get weird, and fans got weirder as the 60s shifted into 1970. It was around this time that Jimmy Page began to have deep fixations with Aleister Crowley. His bookstore he financed, The Equinox, was named after a Crowley journal and it stocked some seriously rare and pricey occult books. One of the first public mentions of Crowley came in a February 1970 Melody Maker interview with Page, which noted a large amount of Crowley memorabilia in his house. Now, in the same month, in February of 1970, the lead singer of Led Zeppelin, Robert Plant, was nearly killed in a single-car crash, which required him to do some performances in a wheelchair. Then two months later, his Aston Martin fell on him while he was working under it, crushing his ribs. Around this time is when supposedly Page asked the band to perform a magical ritual with him, a ritual that would bring the band power, unimaginable, and something akin to everlasting life. Now, for anyone who has heard or talked to people in the know, this kind of magic is nothing to fool with. It supposedly involves forces with powers beyond any human imagination and is not to be trifled with by anyone not steeped in mountains of experience, certainly not for novice magi or stone guitarists. The oracle at Delphi giving ambiguous and mixed prophecies is a good ancient example. Blame hubris, blame drugs, but Page allegedly got the band, minus one, to join in this solemn and ancient ceremony. 
John Paul Jones was either skeptical enough or wise enough to know to stay far, far away from this. The first evidence of this pact showed up on the Led Zeppelin III album. It was years before many discovered its existence. Between the end of the last song and the paper label is the outro groove. This is where matrix numbers used by the pressing plant are usually located. Written into the vinyl, carved with the stylus into the test pressing acetate more correctly, was etched, so mote it be, on one side and do what thou wilt on the other. These are basic stock phrases that are in the core of Crowley's belief system and are familiar to most who are aware of him. The magical significance of a Crowley power phrase spinning simultaneously on thousands of turntables across the world could not have escaped Page's notice. Colleagues from this era say Page most certainly was a member of the OTO, or the Ordo Templi Orientis, at this point. Now more on that later, that's got a Crowley connection as well. It was on Led Zeppelin IV that the symbolism became more overt. No band name or title graced the cover or spine. Inside a haunting painting of the hermit, a powerful tarot card symbol, was the sole image. On the inner sleeve, more esoterica. Four symbols, boldly across the sleeve, from left to right. These represent Page, Jones, Bonham, and Plant. Page has said in interviews that most of these were taken from Rudolf Koch's 1955 Book of Signs, a collection of ancient and magical symbols from across the world. Plants is the easiest to decipher. The feather of truth from the Egyptian goddess Ma'at. Plant, Plant brought the truth and spoke it. Bonhams is the least esoteric depending on who you believe. It is either a symbol for a drum kit, the family unit, or the Ballantine beer logo. Wise pundits refer to the latter as being most likely. John Paul Jones's logo, likely chosen by Page, is an ancient Celtic symbol with different meanings and was co-opted by the early Christian church as a meaning for the Trinity. The famed Zozo symbol is harder to pin down. Page famously has said he will never tell anyone what it means, but that it has obvious magical and occult significance. Robert Plant once said that in a quietly guarded moment, Page revealed the full meaning of all four signs, including a lengthy discussion of what Zozo meant. Unfortunately for all of us, Plant said, I was a bit wasted at the time, and by the next morning I had forgotten. I asked him the next day to tell me again, and he said he couldn't or wouldn't. Even Sandy Denny of Fairport Convention, the ethereal voice on Battle of Evermore, got her own symbol. Cue foreshadowing music here. In the credits, her symbol is related to both the Godhead and the power of the female. This is a lot of esoteric yap, but where's the curse? Well, according to Pamela DeBar, groupie extraordinaire and main squeeze of page during this era, Jimmy got very deep into the Crowley myth. He tasked her to scour San Francisco and Los Angeles for Crowley mania. She managed to come up with, with many impressive artifacts, manuscripts, and even the magical robes that Crowley wore. Then in 1970, Page dropped a large chunk of change to acquire the mansion, Boleskine, located on Loch Ness. Page said that the house had a history of suicides, which was true. London Magazine Disc and Music Echo featured a cover story in their April 22, 1972 issue entitled Jimmy Page on Magic. My house used to belong to Aleister Crowley. I knew that when I moved in. Magic is very important if people can go through it. I think Crowley's completely relevant to today. We're still seeking for truth, and the search goes on. 
This was now a serious obsession, but he managed to keep it fairly quiet and above board. Visitors to Beleskin said that at dusk, the outdoor patio was awash with shadowy phantoms and ghostly shapes. The postul they postulated that these were the residue of decades of conjuring and other esoteric rituals. Whatever you choose to believe, maids and servants were a quick turnover and employment, as all agree that the place was haunted to the point of being uninhabitable and beyond creepy. Enter Kenneth Anger, Crowley disciple and filmmaker. He was a noted underground filmmaker, drug taker, and subversive. When Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin hatched a plan to exercise and levitate the Pentagon in 1967, people took it as a yippie lark, a stage show. However, Anger was ensconced under a truck, busily drawing magic circles, burning incense, and chanting spells in Enochian, truly and seriously trying to do a real ritual exorcism. When plans for his film Lucifer Rising began to go astray, the lead actor, who was Bobby Buscioli, and he was later convicted of a murder as a Manson family member, had to quit. Anton LaVey of the Church of Satan had a cameo in the film. Anger had an off-and-on relationship with the Rolling Stones for soundtrack work. Now, eerily enough, right before the Altamont concert tragedy is when this took place. Rough cuts and cameras were stolen by Bilisoli. To take his revenge, Anger made a magic talisman, one side of which was a likeness of Basoli and the other of a toad. On it was written, Bob Basoli, turned into a toad by Kenneth Anger. Basoli ended up in jail for life for murder within a year. Page and Anger met when, in 1973, the duo cross at a Sotheby's auction where they both were bidding on a manuscript of Crowley's. Page was, as we have discussed, a huge fan of Crowley, and as you know, even went on to own the Beleskin House in the Misty Hills of Scotland. Now, at that time, Anger was currently working on a short film, Lucifer Rising, as I've said, and he was desperately in need of some music for the film. Having already worked on the film for nearly seven years, the filmmaker was growing weary without a soundtrack. He duly asked his new pal Page, who at the time was one of the biggest recording artists in the world, if he could contribute to the project's score. Page agreed, and according to some sources, he even lent Anger editing equipment to use on the film. After agreeing to step in to do the soundtrack, little did Jimmy Page know this was to be the start of a love-hate relationship between Anger and Page that would last to this very day. The music Page produced was genuinely creepy. Now, some of it, folks, showed up on In Through the Outdoor as the intro to In the Evening. And as soon as I read this, I instantly knew the intro to the song. Some music, things that I've really enjoyed in my life, I've got a pretty much a photographic memory. I can just close my eyes and I can hear the song. So do yourself a favor and just go and listen to In the Evening. It's probably about 30 seconds, just the beginning before the words start. And then picture that being in a movie called Lucifer Rising. And you can see that it was very atmospheric. Now, Anger soon moved into Beleskin, and he shared his love with Crowley and Page, and they spent many hours talking about the different memorabilia and things that they had. The guitarist would go on to contribute up to 20 minutes of spine-tingling music to the film, the kind of music that makes you pray to Satan for salvation. But Anger was left furious and apparently disappointed with one of the greatest guitarists of all time. Anger wanted 40 minutes of music and had a major falling out with Page, over the lack of completion on the guitarist's part. 
It went one step further when Charlotte Martin, Jimmy's girlfriend at the time, kicked him out of the basement in Beleskin, a space he'd been occupying with his equipment. Some years later, Anger would recall, and these are his words, So Jimmy Page did some music instead. He's a miser, which is a horrible thing. He wouldn't even pay for lunch. So I said, isn't it preposterous that you're so cheap? And that, of course, insulted him. He was on heroin all the time, you know. I hate all those druggies because their eyes get glazed and they say it, and what they say is meaningless because they don't follow through. I said, okay, Jimmy, I need exactly 40 minutes, but he only gave me 20. I said, what am I supposed to do? Play it twice? I need 40 minutes. I need a climax. Like the film is the end and the beginning of the world. You've got to give me that big music. It led to Anger and Paige really falling out, and in turn, Anger publicly cursed Paige and his girlfriend Charlotte, apparently drawing on his occult leanings. How successful the curse was on the multimillionaire, highly regarded guitar maestro was to be seen, though many do attribute the bad luck which fell on Robert Plant as down to Anger's curse. According to Anger, he's a multimillionaire miser. He and Charlotte, that horrible vampire girl, they had so many servants, yet they would never offer me a cup of tea or a sandwich, which is such a mistake on their part, because I put the curse of King Midas on them. If you're greedy and just amass gold, you'll get an illness. So I did turn her and Jimmy Page into statues of gold, because they both lost their minds. He can't write songs anymore. Anger was eventually asked to leave Page's house, where he had been living, as the relationship degenerated and Page pulled out in 1975. Anger did a major flame job in the media publicity, but privately said he had cursed Page and Zepp with one monster of a spell, the hugest psychic whammy he could conjure, replete with the worst Crowleyisms he could muster. This is where things really started to go south. Now first, Robert Plant was in yet another horrific car crash, plunging off a cliff in Greece in 1975, nearly killing himself, his wife, and his young son, Carrick. This forced a cancellation of the remainder of the physical graffiti tour and postponed the recording of the Presence album, which Plant was forced to record in a wheelchair. The makeup tour was then plagued by a plethora of highly negative events. A sudden case of laryngitis for Plant after the band had shipped all of their equipment and, and instruments to the States meant zero rehearsing was possible. Ticketless fans in Cincinnati rioted and stormed the, the gates, Oddly, the site of the infamous trampling incident at The Who two years later that killed Eleven. In San Francisco, manager Peter Grant and John Bonham roughed up Bill Graham and nearly beat a Bill Graham employee to death. Bonham and Grant narrowly escaped serious charges and incarceration. Then Carrick got sick. The best physicians that money and private jets could afford all had the same answer. We have no idea what's wrong. Carrick passed away in 1977, right after the Graham incident, and as the band arrived in New Orleans, they got the news. The tour was immediately canceled. Plant quit the band and music in response to Page and Jones not showing up to his son's funeral. By now, Zeppelin truly seemed cursed. Things continued to implode. Page was nearly comatose on a daily basis from his crippling heroin addiction. Bonham's alcoholism raged out of control, and he became increasingly violent and unpredictable. In 1978, Sandy Denny, the goddess of Battle of Evermore, plunged drunkenly down a flight of stairs and fatally broke her neck. Finally, on the 24th of September 1980, John Bonham was picked up by Led Zeppelin assistant Rex King to attend rehearsals at Bray Studios for a tour of North America. 
to be to begin on the 17th of October in Montreal, the band's first since 1977. During the journey, Bonham asked to stop for breakfast, where he drank four quadruple vodka screwdrivers. That's 16 shots between 400 and 560 milliliters of vodka, also equivalent to 9 to 13 American standard drinks. He then continued to drink heavily after arriving in rehearsals. The band stopped rehearsing late in the evening and then went to Page's house, the old mill house in Kluwer, Windsor. After midnight on the 25th of September, Bonham fell asleep. Someone took him to bed and placed him on his side. Handlers tucked him in bed. He'd only drank 40 shots. He would be fine. Led Zeppelin tour manager Benji Laferve and John Paul Jones found him unresponsive the next afternoon. Bonham was later pronounced dead at 32 years old, and so was Zeppelin. The curse had cut a swath through the band in under five years. Only John Paul Jones, the only one not to sign the supposed pact, remained unscathed. When all is said and done, it is pretty easy to chalk all of the above up to circumstance and chance. Eerie circumstances, but nevertheless a round of odd coincidences. Page had said several times in interviews that he was using a system that worked. When asked about Crowley, clearly occult practices were genuinely involved on some level, and some creepy and frightening personages dance in the background of the story. Anger does seem to be a demonstrable potential curse source. Things started to backfire just as the band became the worldwide legends they had tried to magically invoke. Perhaps Kenneth Anger's whammy curse was something that tipped things already in motion. Perhaps Page had violated the fourth pillar of the OTO commandments to be silent by dropping some larger hints as to what he was into in 1970s interviews, which drew some commensurate magical actions. But this is the thing that gets me. When so-called black magicians mess with this stuff, they usually do a protective spell on themselves for extra safety, because blackish magic is notorious for either backfiring or not working in the way it was supposed to. Just think of the story of the monkey's paw folks. Collateral damage around events associated with this behavior is well known. But Page's extra level of spell could be simple like, make sure nothing happens to me. And looking back on Page's career since 1980, his level of heroin addiction, lack of production musically, failed Zeppelin reunions, and general dearth of accomplishments, after nearly two decades of brilliance, it gives one pause. Nothing, literally nothing, has happened to him, good or bad just as it was phrased, and a fairly decent body count to go along with it, just enough to make you wonder, really wonder. So one of the weirder stories you'll hear today ends with a director cursing one of the greatest guitarists ever to have walked the earth. Safe to say, he probably can still write a tune or two. Maybe this one is in the right vein. Mean old devil taught me to weep and moan. I said that mean old devil, he taught me to weep and moan. Because when he gives you something, baby, your soul is no longer your own. That mean old devil, he taught me how to scream and wail. Yeah, that mean old devil, that joker set me up to fail. He said I'd be famous, he promised me a fortune in gold. He said it wouldn't cost a penny, at least not till I grew old. Well, my hair's now silver, and I'm not feeling too well. I said that dirty rotten liar, now I'm going to burn in hell. If you're trying to get there, brother, better change your ways. You better listen to me or you'll regret it the rest of your days. Crying won't help you. Praying won't do you no good. Because when he gets a hold of you, you'd run away if you could. Sound familiar? 
This is an alternate version of the blues song, When the Levee Breaks, that Zeppelin covered with its more toned-down lyrics as the final track on Led Zeppelin 4, or the aforementioned Zozo album. Page did little to deflect the darker rumors throughout Zeppelin's history. These rumors included that he worshipped Satan, perhaps sensing that they were good for business. In a quote from Page, he said, I don't really want to go on about my personal beliefs or my involvement in magic, he told the Rolling Stone. I'm not interested in turning anybody on to anybody that I'm turned on to. If people want to find things, they can find them themselves. Page went on to claim that bad vibes ran through the 18th century property, where he was adamant the head of an executed man, again believed to be Lord Lovett, who fought with the English during the 1745 Culloden Uprising, could be heard rolling around the floor. When the interviewer went on to clarify that Page himself never had contact with the spirits, Page cut in. I didn't say that. I just said I didn't hear the head roll. He went on to tell the interviewer that he preferred not to discuss the issue further. The musician was to feature Boleskin, and the song remains the same, the documentary which followed the band on their 1973 tour of the U.S. In one scene, Page's eyes glow devil red before it cuts to a short, dense woodland, lit by the moon, with the guitarist climbing to the top of a mountain to the soundtrack of Dazed and Confused, where he meets a hooded creature holding a lantern. Page always claimed Boleskin was haunted, but not necessarily because of Crowley. There were two or three owners before Crowley moved into it, Page told Rolling Stone in 1975. It was also a church that was burned to the ground with the congregation in it. Strange things have happened in that house that had nothing to do with Crowley. The bad vibes were already there. A man was beheaded there, and sometimes you can hear his head rolling down the corridor. Page was soon to ask his childhood friend Malcolm Dent to be the caretaker of Boleskine House, which was owned by the musician for 22 years. Mr. Dent lived there happily, raising his family, until Page sold up in the early 1990s. When asked why he was chosen, Dent explained, Jimmy Page caught me at a time in my life when I wasn't doing a great deal, and he asked me to come up and run the place. I never did establish why he fixed on me. When Dent moved into the house, he said, it was a wreck. It had been more or less abandoned. There'd been at least one fire there. Parts of the building were missing, and it had been badly patched up. The grounds, which at one time had been very nicely laid out, had gone to hell. When Malcolm arrived, he discovered that the couple who were supposed to be looking after the house were into black magic and had let the place become run down. He said, I found a magic circle, a pentagram, and an altar in the dining room. It wasn't until later I learned the dining room had been used by Crowley as his temple. The last straw came when it became clear the couple had carried out a black magic baptism on their child. After that, I lost all sympathy at kicking them out. Malcolm, a former hard-nosed salesman, never gave the impression of being afraid of anything. He wasn't, until he went to Boleskine House. Malcolm said, I'd only been here a few weeks, and one night, when I was sitting in the lounge, I heard something rumbling along the hallway. It was one of those things that makes your hair stand up on the back of your neck. And folks, right now it's happening to me. When I opened the door and looked, the noise stopped. There was nothing. I shut the door and it started again. It was pretty hairy. That's when I decided to find out what I could about the house in Crowley. The thing in the hall was easy. I was told it's been rolling around the house since shortly after the Battle of Culloden. It's Lord Lovett's head. Malcolm's research showed Lord Lovett was beheaded in the Tower of London, 
At that very moment, so it said, his thoughts were in the highlands. So how did his head end up in the house, which wasn't even built? Malcolm says, Above Beleskin, there's a place called Irogi, which is supposed to be the geographic center of the highlands. Beleskin was then the nearest consecrated ground to Irogi, and it's thought his soul, or part of it, ended up here. Beleskin was built on glebe land in exchange for a new church. Crowley mentions it in his autobiography. He says when he put a billiard table in one of the rooms, the head took to rolling about on it. Down the hall, Malcolm stopped at an old oak door and added, That's the bedroom where I had the most terrifying night of my life. I was awakened in the early hours and knew something was wrong. I was petrified. Whatever was outside was snorting and snuffling and banging. I thought it was something huge. I had a knife on the bedside table, and I opened the blade and sat there. The blade was small and wouldn't have done any good, but I was so frightened I had to have something to hang to. The noise went on for some time, but even when it stopped I couldn't move. I sat on the bed for hours, and even when daylight came, it took lots of courage to open the door. Whatever there was pure evil. He added, There's something bad about that room. Seemingly a man committed suicide in it after the war. We once had a friend who spent the night there. She woke in a hell of a state, claiming she'd been attacked by some kind of devil. Down the long hall are the chairs that switch places. The seven chairs came from the Café Royale in London and belonged to famous patrons who dined there with a nameplate on both the front and the back. The collection consists of the chairs of Crowley, Mary Lloyd, Rudolph Valentino, art critic James Agate, Sir Billy Butlin, artist William Orphan, and sculptor Jacob Epstein. Malcolm said, Crowley's chair always sat at the top of the table, with three others down each side. When we had the chairs repaired and upholstered, they were put back in the same places. That's when the switching around started. Every so often, we'd find Mary Lloyd's at the top of the table. We'd put them back, and it would happen again. The chairs are almost identical, apart from the nameplates, and we found that the upholsterer had innocently switched the Lloyd and Crowley ones. Now we let the Lloyd ones sit at the top, because we know it's Alistair's. Malcolm then headed to see the cellar. As he walked down the steep stone stairs, the chilling air attacks your face. He said, When my daughter was about three, we kept finding her down here in the cellar. She said she went to see the sad lady, who was wet with crying. This happened several times, and she always described the lady the same way, and that she wore a long dress. This was another piece of history we had to research, and the answer appears to be a lady of some standing who was drowned while crossing the loch to meet her betrothed, who owned Beleskin at that time. Malcolm added, Any time there's construction work or major redecoration going on, the house doesn't like it. Carpets and rugs roll up, and heavy doors bang night and day all over the place. We found the answer is to get on with the work quickly. Once the job is finished, the house settles back down. As much as local fo folks avoid Beleskin, the place is like a magnet for others worldwide. Just look at the Beleskin burial ground below the house and across the single track road. Malcolm said, In the old days, this was a pretty lawless place. The kirk inside the grounds was supposed to have been burned down and the con congregation still inside and there's still the little stone watch house where relatives of the newly buried spent weeks in case the dearly departed was dug up by grave robbers. In recent days, the burial ground was used for occult rituals. People danced about at night with candles and that sort of thing. Every year, scores of unwelcome callers make their way along the road on the south side of Loch Ness to Beleskin 
midway between Inverness and Fort Augustus. Most make a pilgrimage for sinister reasons. They come in small groups, mainly at the times of solstice and the full moon. Their hero is Crowley, self-styled the Beast 666. Crowley has become a cult figure since his death in Hastings in 1947. The small groups sneak past the massive iron gates that guard the driveway. In a 2006 interview with the Inverness Courier, Mr. Dent, who died in 2011, said he and his wife and children had loved living there, despite the curious goings-on. Mr. Dent described himself as a skeptic, but said there were things at Beleskin that just couldn't be explained. He said doors would be slamming all night. You'd go into a room and the carpets and rugs would be piled up. Another regular occurrence was the back door. Inside doors and kitchen doors would all suddenly spring open as if someone was running through them, even on calm days. We just used to say that was Alistair doing his thing, Mr. Dent said. Now this one, folks, may be the most eerie of all. One fascinating argument many years ago was between Malcolm and a visitor who believed in the occult in general and Crowley in particular. The spectacular ending of the debate is best told by Malcolm. I was pouring cold water on certain things that Crowley was supposed to have done, and my companion was taking the opposite view. Eventually, the conversation died a death. Suddenly, there was seconds of silence. Neither of us could think of another thing to say. That's when it happened. In those seconds, a small porcelain figure of the devil, sitting on the mantelpiece, rose up to the roof, and then at a tremendous speed smashed itself to smithereens on the fireplace. We just stared at one another, and then I began to laugh. There was no doubt in my mind who was responsible. It was Alistair Crowley, letting us, and me in particular, know he's still a force in the house. When asked, what was the most unusual thing you've seen or heard, Malcolm said it was a couple of months ago, and I was outside late, filling coal buckets. There had been an upheaval getting the house ready for viewing, and I had started moving some of the stuff. Without warning, and in what I can only describe as a great booming voice came, What are you doing? When I got back inside, I was as white as a sheet. That scared me. When asked whose voice it was, Malcolm said, I think we both know the answer to that. Although Jimmy Page never spent a great length of time there, he did everything he could to return the house to how it would have looked during Crowley's ownership. For example, he commissioned an artist, Charles Pace, to paint some Crowley-esque murals on the walls. These were based on murals in Crowley's Abbey of Thelma in Sicily discovered by Kenneth Anger in 1955. The house was put back on the market for £250,000 in 1991. It was purchased by Ronald and Annette McGillivray in 1992. The McGillivrays being related to the Frasers, Ronald sought to re-establish Beleskin as a Fraser estate once more. Some may share memories of gatherings in the gardens of Beleskin while traditional bagpipes played for merry parties. According to Mrs. McGillivray, when they bought the house, it was in a very bad state. They spent a lot of money stripping it back to the bare walls and re-roofing it. It was a major project with four bedrooms, four bathrooms, a huge drawing room, dining room, library, and various smaller rooms. The house was then converted into a hotel. When Ronald died in 2002, he was said to have hated any reference to the house's dark past when it was home to Crowley. When asked whether she had experienced any mysterious happenings in Beleskin House, his wife states that she experienced absolutely none. I'm a non-believer and didn't listen to all that rubbish. We had a great time there. 
Following Ronald McGillivray's death in 2002, Boleskine House was put up for sale again. This time, new Dutch owners, Tunis Griffonen and Gertrude Johanna Baker, converted the house back into a private residence and used it as a holiday home. In 2009, a plot on the former estate was put on the market for £176,000 with plans to build a three-bedroom log house. The sale also included foreshore of Loch Ness. It was in 2015 that the house suffered a devastating fire, rendering it uninhabitable. In April 2019, Boleskine House was put back on the market. It was purchased in the following July, and the Boleskine House Foundation, SCIO, was established shortly after. Meanwhile, it is understood that the Boleskine Foundation has been in discussions with the OTO, a religious organization previously led by Crowley, about giving access to its followers. A statement on their foundation's website said it wanted to preserve the historical legacy and heritage of the estate for the greater benefit of the public. It added, Upon its complete restoration, our volunteers intend to use the estate to promote education on the heritage of the house, to welcome the enjoyment of its structure and surrounding gardens, and to help to generate awareness of health and wellness. Such communities included, but are not limited to, the local communities of foyers, the wider community of Scottish heritage and historic environment, and communities who value Burleskin to be of significant spiritual import of which we will promote events and activities that facilitate health and wellness, such as meditation and yoga, as well as education on Thelema, the spiritual legacy forwarded by previous Boleskine House owner, Alistair Crowley. While it is planned to open up the main rooms of Boleskine House to the public, the property will be closed at certain times of the year to be used by those who consider the house and lands to have spiritual importance. Memorial celebrations may also be held in the gardens, where ashes can be scattered for certain communities who feel the estate holds spiritual importance. With the Boleskin land now disposed into the ownership of the charity, it is intended that Boleskin House will remain a charitable cause for years, decades, and centuries to come. But what if, as Holiday thought, that the monster in the loch was a different kind of monster completely? Could the legendary creature have been the consequence of Crowley's failure to properly end the ritual he had started? And further, what exactly became of the Boleskine house and its mystical energies? So folks, what are we left with? Undoubtedly, the true believers will continue to whisper about the dark history of the house, and in turn, the skeptics will dismiss this story outright, paying it no attention. These are their respective jobs, after all. But consider for a moment a fair compromise on the matter. Perhaps Crowley did invoke something not quite understood by many. Perhaps what he invoked was a sense of hysteria that had very real effects on the reality of those that fell into its grasp. Living with and around the so-called wickedest man in the world is bound to start a few sweeping rumors, like the scary old man who lived in the dilapidated house at the edge of town. Crowley and his experiences, whether you believe them or not, are the kinds of stories that leave ripples through time affecting a place in the people who visit it in many ways that may not only be in the head, but have a tangible way of manifesting themselves in reality. Could it be the demon-summoning ritual had worked in a way that Crowley had not foreseen? Modern-day wizard surrealist and performer Anthony Dockshields thinks this may well be the case. Whilst engaged in the magical monster mind experiment described later, Doc made the acquaintance of a man named Patrick Kelly, 
Kelly claimed to have photographed a lake monster in Loch Lean in 1981. Now, folks, you know how I told you we weren't going to talk much about the Loch Ness Monster? Well, I switched it up on you. Actually, I am. We're still going to have a separate episode about Loch Ness, but this was just too good to leave out. This, however, was not the most fantastic of his claims, that being this man named Patrick Kelly. He said that he was a direct descendant of Edward Kelly, the notorious scryer of Dr. John D. D was the court magician to Queen Elizabeth I, and he claimed to speak with the dead via a young medium whom he had trained. The modern-day Kelly also claimed his father Lawrence had met Alistair Crowley in Paris in 1933 after he had left the Abbey of Thelma. Crowley told Lawrence that he was very interested in the Loch Ness Monster, whose first major flap of the 20th century was occurring at that time. Patrick Kelly and his father both claimed to have seen the Loch Ness Monster on the 1st of May 1969, and you guessed it, very close to Boleskin House. Fantastic assertions indeed, but at least for this last one, there may be some evidence. In June of the same year, three American students were exploring the 17th century cemetery below Boleskin House. They came across a curious object. It was an old tapestry wrapped around a conch shell. The tapestry had been decorated with serpent-like symbols embroidered in gold thread. It measured four feet by five feet and seemed to be old and threadbare. There were reddish stains at each corner, as if objects had been placed there. All in all, it looked like an altar cloth. The shell was about five inches long, white and inscribed with two parallel grooves and a lotus blossom. When blown, it produced a harsh braying sound. The objects were taken to the Victoria and Albert Museum in London to be studied by experts. The tapestry was later identified as being Turkish in origin. The snake-like symbols were Turkish script for the word serpent. We should also note that today, Lake Van in the east of Turkey is said to be inhabited by a dragon. Lotus flowers, like the one on the conch shell, along with roast swallows, were said to be the favorite food of dragons in China. They were often used as offerings to dragons in oriental lakes to appease them and ensure rainfall. Could Patrick Kelly and his father have been performing some kind of ritual at Loch Ness? Perhaps they were disturbed and had to leave behind their artifacts as they hurriedly retreated. If this were the case, then it seems that the Kellys were successful in their endeavor. Doc instigated the largest monster-raising experiment ever in 1977. 77's a good year. Doc had been in contact with seven professional psychics from around the world for some time. The group called themselves the Psychic Seven International, or, <laughs> this is it, PSI. The seven decided to try and contact or call up aquatic dragons by using their powers. Doc took part in a number of spectacular rituals involving sky-clad, that's naked folks, naked witches, besides various bodies of water in Ireland and Scotland. His colleagues concentrated on other lakes around the globe. The experiment commenced on the last day of January, or more importantly, the pagan feast of Imboic. Doc saw the results for himself on the 21st of May, 1977. He'd traveled to Scotland with his wife, Chris, because he had performed a ritual invocation. He was in the car park of the Inuk Dock Lodge with four friends, 
when they all saw three humps gliding through the water, about 900 feet away in the direction of Fort Augustus. The humps slipped with hardly a ripple beneath the surface. None of the group had a camera on them at the time. Doc, though elated at the beast's presence, was understandably frustrated. Little did he know that he would later that day take what were widely regarded to be the finest pictures of the Loch Ness Monster ever obtained. Doc and Chris had hitchhiked to Dronamukic and from there walked to Urquhart Castle, overlooking the loch. At 4 p.m., he was ensconced in a ruined tower, looking over the water from the window, this time with his camera. So, folks, you know, oftentimes when people, you'll, you'll see it and they'll talk about Loch Ness and they'll show photos of it in, uh, you know, different programs and that, that castle that they show, that kind of ruined castle, that's where he was. Now, this is the quote from him. Quite suddenly, a small dark head on the end of a long, sinuous neck broke the surface of the water, about a hundred yards away. It was undoubtedly the Loch Ness Monster, proudly a reptile, ready to be snapped. I instantly raised my camera and shot two pictures during the few seconds the creature was visible. Its neck was four or five feet long, greenish-brown, with a yellowish underside. Its open-mouthed head was tiny in relation to the muscular neck. The animal turned away from me, straightened its neck before sinking vertically. I stood there mesmerized by the brief, dreamlike vision, my heart beating rapidly, hands shaking as I lowered the camera, whispering expletives, ecstatic. Doc's friend, David Clark, arranged for the high-speed ectochrome film to be developed by Nuquay Color Services, who handled most of the color transparency work for Cornish Life magazine. The two snaps were startled startling in their clarity, showing the muscles in the beast's neck and its open mouth. The glean of an eye even seems to be visible. Some, however, have dismissed the picture as a fake, possibly a close-up photo of a painting on silk. Now, folks, I've looked at this photo. Amazingly, I'd never seen it before. If it is real, it's astounding. There are conflicting claims that it was a fake and conflicting claims that it was real. Rather than get too far into the weeds here, we will have to revisit that in a future episode where I tackle Scotland's greatest current celebrity, this side of Gerard Butler. The results of Monster Mind Worldwide were spectacular. 1977 was a year filled with monsters. A gigantic aquatic dragon was sighted off San Francisco Bay, and Champ, the monster of Lake Champlain, appeared. A 12-meter or 40-foot monster was seen in Lake Kolkol in Kazakhstan, in what was then Soviet Central Asia. One Miss M. Lindsay took two photos of Morag, the monster of Lake of, of Loch Marar, on the 31st of January. On the same day, a monster was spotted in Loch Shiel by John Smith. The Loch Ness monster was seen on at least three occasions. Mr. and Mrs. Alex McLeod, Pat Scott Innes, and Mr. Fleming and his daughter Helen, three color photographs of Morgoire, the, the Cornish Sea Dragon, were taken by Gerald Bennett from Parsons Beach, and the monster was spotted again by Ray Hopley off Trefusis Point. A spectacular set of sightings, but they came at a cost, if one gives credit to Doc's psychic backlash theory. Dr. David Hoy, one of the American participants in Monster Mind, suffered a heart attack. Another member, Major Leslie May, MBE of Edinburgh, also fell ill and many other members of the team from the former USSR, Mexico, 
and India have seemingly vanished. Doc has heard nothing of them since 1977. Doc himself was attacked by a mob in Plymouth. He also accidentally set his beard on fire, had a son involved in a motorbike crash, had his daughter thrown by an unusually by a usually docile horse, had another daughter stricken by abdominal pains, and lost two cats to some unidentifiable malady. Ted Holliday, another long-term monster hunter, reported a similar curse that seems to banjax him some years before. The idea that the Loch Ness Monster was a malevolent supernatural entity reached its peak in the early 1970s. In 1973, one man believed things had gone on too long, and he decided to exorcise Loch Ness. Yes, that's right. He was ready to perform an exorcism on Loch Ness. He was the Reverend Dr. Donald Ormond. Dr. Ormond was perhaps the 20th century's most renowned exorcist. During his long career, he dealt not only with ghosts and demonic possession, but with latter-day vampires, phantom black dogs, and areas of the sea where people were drawn by a strange siren-like urge to drown themselves. These cases, fantastic as they are, pale into children's games when compared to the Doctor's strangest case. Dr. Armand's first encounter with a lake monster happened in 1967 whilst on a caravanning holiday on the shores of Long Loch in Rosshire. One morning, he set out to walk to the village of Ardilv. The route back took him past Loch Dol Sorry, Douche. As he looked out over the loch, the calm water suddenly became violently disturbed, foaming and heaving. For one absurd moment, the Reverend thought a submarine was breaching in the loch but the object revealed itself to be some immense aquatic animal with two huge humps that reared out of the water. Then just as swiftly as it had surfaced, the beast sank, leaving only concentric ripples as a clue to its manifestation. The doctor made up his mind to exercise Loch Ness. The reverend believed that the monster's manifestations were not in and of themselves evil, but rather that evil had attached itself to the phenomena and to the area. He believed that he could purge this evil and leave the monsters intact. This theory was not shared by F.W. Holliday, who believed the creatures themselves to be overwhelmingly evil. I don't know for certain, but I think their character was described in the first book of Genesis. I'm not even sure that it exists physically or not. There are things which do not exist and yet may be visible to man. The more Dr. Ormond thought, the more convinced he became that the monsters were paranormal in nature. The doctor decided to seek the advice of a fellow exorcist, Reverend Dom Robert Pettipiri, a monk of the Anglican Order of St. Benedict. Dom Robert took a large map of the loch and drew a cross upon it. The top of the crucifix was at the Inverness side of the loch and the base near Fort Augustus. The intersection terminated on the left at Drunamukdokik, sorry, <laughs> and on the right at the point between Inverfehig and Doris. The men planned preliminary exorcisms at each of these points. The final rite was to be carried out in the center of the cross, in the very center of the loch, in a boat. All the points of entry and exit along waterways were bound against evil to stop the contamination spreading during the ritual. Between them, the exorcists drew up a rite from German, Spanish, Roman, Greek, and English sources. On the 2nd of June, 1973, the ritual took place. Accompanied by Holiday, Dr. Orman exercised all of the points, and eventually on a small boat, he rode to the center of the dark Pidi Loch. There, floating on 800 feet of cold black water, 
he gave the final exorcism. I adjure thee, thou ancient serpent, by the judge of the quick and the dead, by him who made thee in the world, that thou cloak thyself no more in manifestation of prehistoric demons. Thou henceforth shalt bring no sorrow to the children of men. After the ceremony, Dr. Ormond felt drained and fell into a very deep sleep. He believed his exorcism to have been a success, and he subsequently went on to exorcise Lake Storzen in Sweden. Sure, the Loch Ness Monster could have, been, could have existed. It may very well still. It could have even been the projection of some dark magic that we can't possibly comprehend. Whatever the case, I'm fairly certain of the reason many more know of the monster than of the bizarre happenings in Beleskin House. It's far easier to commercialize a skittish water creature than it is to commercialize the odd misdoings of a bisexual, recreational, drug-using libertine. Then again, David Bowie has had a fine career. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed this fascinating and intertwined tale of Boleskine House. It's always been a fascinating topic for myself, and so I wanted to cover it over for you. The research on this was intense, and it took me a long time to pull it all together, so I do hope that you enjoyed it. Now, I will tell you, folks, some of the talk there about the potential impact of this. As I was researching this and as I've been recording it out in the studio, I have been having goosebumps. And I've, when I was doing the research about Crowley um, and the 12 Dukes and, and Princes of Hell, I actually was getting, um, felt cold chills the other day. And uh, I felt like I was being watched for what it's worth. So I just want to say to you folks, my friends, that uh, this stuff affects me as well. So don't think that I've got like this iron constitution that none of the stuff in the paranormal freaks me out. That kind of stuff definitely does. Now, with that being said, folks, I will have a show this week. I don't know what it will be just yet. We will see. I'll do my best to get it out on Wednesday. And as always, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell. And that quotes that a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does reside within may not be reached 